Welcome to the Kauffman Foundation's Uncommon Voices series, in which we highlight people who are working to make sure all Americans, regardless of their race, gender, or geography, are able to share in our country's prosperity. In this episode, Jason Weens, Policy Director for the Kauffman Foundation, has a wide-ranging conversation about the critical role policy plays for small businesses, especially given the confluence of factors in 2020 with Brandy Bynum Dawson, Director of Advocacy for the North Carolina Rural Center, and Stacy Mitchell, Co-Director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Here's Jason. Welcome to a Kaufman conversation about the challenges entrepreneurs face competing with uh, big established businesses and how those challenges are often exacerbated by government support of big business. My name is Jason Weens. I serve as Policy Director in Entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, and I'm joining this conversation today from my home in Roland Park, Kansas. You know, all entrepreneurs face challenges when it comes to starting a business and growing that business, um, but there are certain um, entrepreneurs, um, often based on their demographic characteristics, just because of who they are, that face extra challenges and barriers when it comes to entrepreneurship. People of color, women and rural residents in particular, um, face challenges that um, white male entrepreneurs don't, uh, that make the entrepreneurial journey more challenging and difficult. And joining me today to talk about those challenges and how we can create a more level playing field for all entrepreneurs are Brandy Bynum Dawson and Stacy Mitchell. Brandy and Stacy, welcome. Um, glad to have you with us for this conversation. Uh, Brandy, we start by introducing yourself, please. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to, to share our perspective here from uh, North Carolina. Again, I'm Brandy Bynum Dawson, Director of Advocacy um, at the North Carolina Rural Center. Uh, the Rural Center has a history and mission of over 30 years in supporting uh, rural people in places across our state. Uh, we recognize that there's a challenging landscape uh, impacting rural, but our mission is really to develop, promote, and implement sound economic strategies to improve the quality of life of rural North Carolinians. We see serving the state's 80 rural counties uh, with a special focus on individuals with low to moderate incomes and communities with limited resources. Great, thank you. And Stacy, will you introduce yourself, please? Sure, and thanks so much for the invitation to be part of this conversation. Um, I'm Stacy Mitchell. I'm the co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Um, we're a national nonprofit research and advocacy organization that focuses on reducing concentrated corporate power and strengthening local economies and communities. Um, I run our independent business initiative. So we work across the country and at all levels of government, often in partnership with uh, grassroots organizations and various allies to uh, examine what is uh, happening to independent businesses and to help develop policy solutions and implement those solutions. I want to jump right into the conversation and, and I want to start by uh, sharing uh, just a little bit about entrepreneurship and an initiative that we have embarked on at the Kauffman Foundation. You know, I think um, for some people in America, uh, entrepreneurship is about big names and billionaires, um, but that's not how we approach the issue uh, at Kaufman. We see entrepreneurship really as something for everyday Americans who have an idea and want to take that idea and bring it to life. And that view really um, guided the formation last fall of a policy document that we published called America's New Business Plan. It's a response to the uneven playing field that exists in entrepreneurship today, 
the outsized role that government uh, plays often in supporting established businesses, as well as stagnant rates of entrepreneurship, which for the last few decades um, has been kind of the situation uh, across the United States. And America's new business plan focuses on four core needs that all entrepreneurs have. Um, briefly, those are the need of opportunity. How do we create a level playing field and reduce red tape that stands in the way of entrepreneurial success? The second issue that we address in the plan is funding. This is about creating equal access to capital for all entrepreneurs, no matter who they are or where they are from. The third piece is knowledge. And this is really about the provision of resources and uh, training and skills uh, to equip entrepreneurs to be successful. And then finally, the last piece is support. And this is about how do we create a more um, robust safety net that enables entrepreneurial risk taking. And America's new business plan, uh, you know, we see it as a plan by entrepreneurs and for entrepreneurs. And I'll explain what that means. Um, when we set out to create this plan, uh, we didn't lock a few folks from the Kauffman Foundation in a, in a conference room and then come up with our own ideas about what we thought mattered for entrepreneurs, but we really um, engaged deeply uh, in the communities uh, in which we serve. We had nearly 50 conversations with key leaders in the entrepreneurial community, as well as many other more informal, shorter conversations with entrepreneurs. And then we also looked at public polling data um, from entrepreneurs. And there are two um, key findings from some of those polls that I wanted to share with you and that we reference in America's new business plan. The first is that 79% of new business owners say that they did not feel that they had the support of government when they started their business. And the second piece is that two thirds of entrepreneurs agree that government incentives favor established businesses over new businesses. So with those stats in mind, Brandy and Stacy, let's start the conversation. And I'd like to get from you both a sense of how you see that playing out in your work, helping entrepreneurs. Some of the symptoms that we see are, is this collapse in entrepreneurship that you referenced and also just the decline in the number of small businesses that we have in many sectors. Um, it's true in retail, it's true in manufacturing, uh, construction trades. Uh, and many services as well. Um, we've seen just declining numbers of small and independent businesses. Um, it seems to have become harder to start a business, harder to sustain a business, um, and the economy is increasingly uh, concentrated in a few hands. And you know, the implications of that are that we have economic opportunity and activity that is more centralized in a few big cities and missing from lots of rural America, but also lots of sort of second tier cities and smaller cities as well have been left behind by this process. And so, you know, when we think about how do we distribute opportunity, how do we build a strong middle class, um, you know, I think that we're, we're really seeing an economy that's not enabling that because of these kinds of barriers that exist for entrepreneurship and small business. I'll just add to that and piggyback on what Stacy um, so beautifully stated. And I think for us, it's also looking at from the lending standpoint, right? So we have seen definitely a decline in the number of uh, banking institutions, particularly in rural North Carolina. You know, just for example, between 2010 and 2015, there was uh, 155 bank reductions in rural North Carolina alone. I mean, we're a state of 100 counties, and as you can imagine, losing 100, over 100 banks across the state, and particularly in rural communities, has been really detrimental. 
uh, to the opportunities to lend to our small businesses across the state, as well as we've seen a decline in actually the amount of funding being allocated to small businesses as well. Let's continue this conversation um, from the, the angle of, or the perspective of rural America and what some of these challenges that we see um, in the economy that have led to an uneven playing field, how that plays out, particularly for folks who live uh, in smaller towns. Um, you know, myself, my, I grew up in uh, Topeka, Kansas, so I, I've never had the opportunity to live in rural America, um, but two experiences in my life have kind of shaped my, my own kind of understanding and appreciation uh, for, for those parts of our country. And one of those is from uh, my grandma and grandpa who lived in Pratt, Kansas, uh, in the south central part of the state, population of about 6,000. And when I was young, uh, one of the jobs my grandma had was she worked at a local uh, independently owned shoe store. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what's happened to that uh, shoe store uh, since grandma stopped working there. Uh, but we know when we look at the data that a lot of these locally owned stores in rural communities um, that once existed uh, 10, 20 years ago um, have closed. You know, one stat uh, I saw uh, recently said that between 2010 and 2016, the net change in the number of new business establishments was essentially zero uh, in non-metropolitan or rural communities. So while we've seen, Stacey, you mentioned, you know, some big cities really capturing all the, the gains and value uh, of the economy, that's where a lot of new business activity is occurring, but it's only occurring increasingly in a few places in the country and many communities um, have lost out on something, I believe, when we see um, locally owned businesses close and, they, and they're not able to stay open uh, and they shut their doors, that that community has lost something uh, that's valuable. Do you agree with mm -hmm. that? And are there other things that we should be thinking about when we think about the, the loss of um, locally owned independent small businesses? I think you're absolutely right. There is some, there is quite a bit that is lost when we lose local businesses, particularly in rural communities in some respects, because those smaller scale businesses are the anchors of their economic activity. Um, and really, you know, it's, it's a loss of economic capacity, but also so much more. Um, these are, you know, businesses that are really pillars of the community fabric, um, the sense of belonging, um, the sense of connection, the sense that you're, you, you know, this is, a, this is a place, this is a community that has a degree of agency and a degree of self-determination. Um, you know, we are seeing in, the, in some sociological research that communities that lose locally owned businesses also tend to have a, a, an erosion of their uh, social networks and their civic activity and participation. I think Brandy's point about the, the, the interconnections that exist, uh, the sort of web of economic relationships between the banks and the local businesses, and if you're in a farming region between farmers and the local businesses, um, that you know, when you lose any of those pieces of the web, it erodes all the other ones. And so it can be a sort of a downward snowball effect. And then there's a whole set of, of, of civic and social losses that come as well. And we see this in the data about despair in rural communities um, and a sense of, of hopelessness um, that affects us in so many ways that are not easily measured, but are really, um, you know, just have an incredible impact on our well-being uh, as people. And I think in addition to that, I'll just, you know, add that, you know, what impacts rural Im impacts suburban and urban? 
Um, and I just think this regionalism idea or the opportunity or potentially lack thereof because of the shuttering of these small businesses in rural communities, um, you know, leads to less opportunity for this regional approach to be taken advantage of. And we've also seen since the 2010 census, uh, 50 of our rural counties have lost population. So people are moving out, right? And so with that moving out, obviously businesses have less foot traffic, less opportunity to make profit and to sell their products. Um, and so there's an economic loss significantly as a result of that. There's also a people loss. So, you know, I think for a small communities, I'm from one. You know, I grew up in a small town in Northeastern North Carolina, a town of nine, 900 people. Um, mm -hmm. So very, very small town, no stoplights, no, you know, only stop signs and, and cows. And so our main street, I remember all those businesses and, you know, going back there now, none of them exist anymore at all. This was, you know, your mom and pop, what we would call a sort of a nickel and dime store. They had all the little cute, cute um, items and toys and trinkets. It was also a pharmacy, right? So, you know, not only for my grandma, who's 94, I mean, she's lost definitely a sense of connection to the people that she grew up with, right? These were her friends. These were her neighbors. These are people that she saw on a regular basis. So with the loss of those businesses goes a loss of memory uh, with those history with mm -hmm. the businesses, um, I think as well as a, a sense of belongingness as well. So a sense of pride and almost a sense of hope, unfortunately. So we definitely want to be able to turn that around, but I definitely am well aware of sort of what that loss means and what it looks like for a local community. Wow. Before I came to the Kauffman Foundation, I uh, had the opportunity and privilege to work for a member of Congress. And uh, when he served in the House of Representatives, he represented 69 of the 105 uh, counties in Kansas. It was one of the most rural congressional districts in the country. And he would often say that uh, for many of the communities he represented, economic development was whether you had a grocery store on Main Street or not. Mm -hmm. uh, he would talk about the importance of the post office as a place where people went, uh, Brandy, uh, to have those connections with their neighbors, uh, to have that sense of community. Are there any things that you're seeing in North Carolina that maybe would be surprising to folks about the kind of entrepreneurship uh, or entrepreneurial energy uh, that, you know, nevertheless, despite the challenges um, you're seeing in some places. People definitely have the, you know, let's pick ourselves back up, dust ourselves off, and let's get back to business type of mentality and mindset. And I love that about my rural communities across North Carolina. Um, you know, and just thinking just based on the data that in North Carolina, businesses with less than 50 employees make up 95% of business entities with more than one employer proprietor. So these small firms account for 44% of all employment in North Carolina. You know, most of these firms are in the food, accommodation, retail, and entertainment and recreation sectors. But that's not just it around small businesses. And I think that's where I definitely want to sort of um, dispel the myth around what defines a small business. So people don't typically think about your private doctor's offices, your family-owned Main Street pharmacy, your small farms you know, catering companies with mobile food stands and your healthy food retailers. Um, you know, back home where I'm from uh, on Main Street, there's a, a new healthy food store. So it's really exciting to see this new energy, people coming back home to start businesses that normally they wouldn't have done that. You know, one example is a young man that I went to school with and um, he came back home to help his dad on a family farm. They're cotton and soybean farmers. And beyond doing that, he's like, you know, what else can I be doing to really generate income, but also to help people rethink a vision for what can work in rural. And so using the products, cotton, he's selling Christmas ornaments, you know, decorations and wreaths, you know, right there in our hometown. 
and has online business sales as well from people all across the world. And that was really took a, a bold vision, right? And risk-taking, but also supported the community at the same time. His whole family is involved, like his aunts are in the back room, like putting the wreaths together. So it really is about this entrepreneurial mindset and the spirit, but also having the support and the network behind it as well. I want to transition us a little bit um, into a new topic that's more um, top of mind for all of us uh, around the world, um, and that is the, the COVID pandemic um, that we're dealing with. There was one of an early study uh, that came out looking at some of the uh, effects already that COVID has been having on uh, new and small business activity. They found that between February and April of this year, the number of business owners in the United States declined by 3.3 million. Uh, this is the largest drop on record. Um, and another survey I saw just this week, uh, over a quarter of business owners said that they have considered closing their business permanently uh, due to COVID. Um, meanwhile, you know, you look at the stock market, for example, um, a lot of uh, big established businesses seem to be doing uh, relatively well. What needs to happen to to save, to support, to strengthen um, these new and small businesses during a really particularly challenging and unprecedented time. So based on the nature of the work that the Rural Center has been leading, not just in the advocacy arm, which is where I spend a lot of my time, but also on the lending side as well. And I came up with three words, right? So listen, learn, and do, right? So listening to what new and small entrepreneurs and small business owners are saying they need and what they don't need, right? I think with that goes an opportunity to really directly connect those folks, entrepreneurs rather, to our policymakers. And we are trying our best at the Rural Center to do that, just that. And thank you to the foundation for your support in that effort. Um, and I would say the learning aspect of it really is around tracking, monitoring, and learning from what has worked and being able to replicate that. It's almost like a statewide kind of case study, right? So can we serve as a repository for those type of case studies and examples so that people can have a model or approach to kind of learn from? And then lastly, I would say do. And for me, that really means advocating for the policies that will help and fighting against those that have been a hindrance to our rural entrepreneurs across the state. And I would just say, quite honestly, access to capital. Now we know that in light of COVID-19, there are some really dire immediate needs to addressing those most immediately in ways that allow them to really get back on their feet. Um, in ways that allows them to really sustain and maintain their businesses over time. And in fact, that's exactly what the Rural Center is doing in partnership with a number of CDFIs across the state that we've launched and are administering a statewide what we call rapid recovery loan program. And so giving those folks a chance to get back on their feet. But what also comes with that is technical assistance and support, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So through the loan application process, also through the business planning process. And this is for existing businesses here in North Carolina. So I think those to me are uh, appropriate equation for how to help right now. One of the things that we've increasingly heard over the last few months at the Kauffman Foundation, that in particular is we engaged in conversations with policymakers and entrepreneurs around the Paycheck Protection Program uh, for all of the trouble that was associated with its rollout, what was often overlooked, and, but it came up in the conversations was the issue you just mentioned, Brandy, which was the technical assistance. You know, you think about the larger businesses uh, and for Paycheck Protection Program, uh, 500 or fewer was the eligibility criteria. Now, a business with 499 people is much different than a business with 19 or nine or two, right? Uh, but they're all lumped together competing um, in some sense uh, for access to these funds. If you're a business with 499 people, you likely have accountants, uh, lawyers, 
uh, a whole infrastructure that allows you to navigate that bureaucracy, those rules. You have the relationships with the banks that you can tap into to get easier access uh, to those relief funds. Um, meanwhile, a sole proprietor, a small business owner with a few employees doesn't have that, that same amount of resources. And I think that's where the technical assistance providers, the entrepreneur support organizations really come in and can play um, a critical role in helping folks navigate that process. Stacy, from your perspective, um, any particular uh, policies, things that you and Institute for Local Self-Reliance would point to right now in the current time uh, as needed to strengthen new and small businesses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really a sort of extraordinary and, and troubling what we're seeing out there. One of the things that's really striking that we're seeing in this moment is how, you know, I, I'm really, it's a, we're seeing these amazing stories of how entrepreneurs are adapting to this moment. And it's really testament to the strength of, of small businesses and entrepreneurs. I mean, I've just talked to so many who've done, you know, really creative things to meet the needs of their community and have often pivoted on a dime to be able to do that, whether it's like manufacturing entirely different kinds of products to meet, um, you know, uh, uh, personal protective equipment or whatever it may be, hand sanitizers. I talked to a florist who, you know, in, in the time of being completely shut down, had come up with a really innovative business where she was uh, delivering to customers who called or ordered online uh, buckets of flowers and stems and so on. And you could then download a little video where she would show you how to arrange them. And she in particular had made some for kids. And so it became a way for families to have activities for their kids at home and for her to keep her business going. And, and you know, there's just so many stories of that that sort of illustrate the way in which we are more resilient as a society if we have more small businesses that can help us pivot when we have these kinds of challenges. But at the same time, it's also just uh, troubling to, to realize how, um, how much the sort of broader structures of our society have put small businesses in a place where they're operating so close to the edge that a challenge like this can just push them right off. Um, we have just released a report, cataloged um, uh, a bunch of different approaches that we've seen that are working well. And we organized it in three pieces. One is, is first, next, and later. And first being, uh, just as Brandy said, the urgent need for financial assistance to get through this period. Um, and while nobody but the federal government has the full power to provide at the scale that's needed, it's still remarkable that local governments have, uh, by our estimate, marshaled somewhere between five and $10 billion very quickly to uh, inject into small businesses and often in more creative and more effective ways than the federal government. Um, so that's sort of some of the stuff on the first front. On the next front is how do you help businesses pivot and adjust to all of the new operational challenges now? Um, and we've profiled some interesting programs, for example, that are helping businesses to get online and to be able to sell through uh, that kind of means, uh, as well as a number of other strategies. 
And then the later is sort of once you've done that, um, taking this opportunity, and I do think this is the one silver lining of this, which is that people are suddenly much more aware of how much small businesses matter. And so we've really been pushing to say, this is a moment to reevaluate your policies broadly and to think about what are the structural changes we wanna make so that we have a stronger small business sector going forward. And it's things like, how do we strengthen community banks? How do we look at how our zoning law might be getting in the way of entrepreneurs? The one last thing I'll say is, as we think about these structural issues, you know, one of the things that's been uh, so troubling about watching the business fallout is that it has overwhelmingly affected um, black and Latino owned businesses. And so dealing with the structural racism that's built into all of these systems um, has got to be part of how we think about that structural shift. I want to dig a little bit deeper on uh, these challenges for entrepreneurs of color, in particular black entrepreneurs. Before that, I want to pick up also on uh, what you identified as a silver lining that policymakers across the board are paying attention now to the needs and of new and small businesses in a way that I don't think has been the case for quite some time. Um, and uh, Brandy, that advocacy work um, that your organization, and I know Stacy, your organization is involved in as well, is just so critical now uh, that policymakers are hearing uh, from entrepreneurs, from business owners, uh, to talk about, yes, what are the needs right now, the short-term immediate challenges and the help that's needed, but also how do we rebuild better? Uh, the Kauffman Foundation just uh, a few months ago took the framework of America's New Business Plan and uh, we uh, released uh, a COVID-19 response, which we did call Rebuilding Better, um, that looks at both the short-term um, ways in which policy can help uh, entrepreneurs and then what are the longer-term solutions that we need to create uh, a more level playing field for all entrepreneurs. If you listen to some economists, uh, it, those that take a very you know, macro level view of the economy uh, will say that um, perhaps it's not such a bad thing if we have some businesses close. You know? Those businesses maybe were the ones that they weren't strong enough, They're, you know, they weren't efficient as other businesses. Um, and when those businesses close, new businesses that are more innovative or have a better product will pop up in their place and, um, and that churn is actually like good or helpful overall for the economy. And we know many new businesses don't, don't uh, make it uh, past the first few years. Uh, how do we distinguish between that natural shedding and then what we're seeing now, which is the potential you know, like needless loss and closure of businesses because of this extraordinary health crisis that we're in? The counter to that would be a loss is a loss, right? And I think particularly for our rural communities, um, any loss in a business is definitely a loss, obviously, to the economy, right? Um, and so for our rural communities, literally every dollar and every cent matters. Um, and so what we would hope, and one can only hope, that if a, a business does um, cease to exist, that a new one or several new ones actually pop up, how can we guarantee that that's the case if we're not doing the work to ensure that that will actually happen? How are we incentivizing new startups and new businesses for that to be the case? Two examples that come to mind for me are two really good friends of mine who unfortunately lost their employment as a result of the pandemic. And you know, fortunately, they were able to get unemployment benefits um, but it really allowed them a chance. And I think it motivated them to almost think about, wow, my, you know, my income, my family's income really hinges on someone else. And how do I take that power and give it back to myself and to my own family, right? 
And so one of them, you know, she has really great skills and she decided to start her own residential and commercial cleaning business. And I'm super proud of her for taking that leap and her business is really booming. And the other same thing happened. And, you know, for her, it was, you know, what am I good at? You know, I love to talk to people. I'm really good with my hands. And so she actually started a business, uh, AV equipment maintenance and repair business. And that's really booming for the both of them. And I, and it, while I think there's definitely a lot of unfortunate regarding the pandemic, it has allowed people who otherwise wouldn't have had really the mental space and capacity to take a step back and really look at how they can pivot, where the opportunities to shift, and they both are in a rural community. And because of where I'm placed right now, I was able to share with them, are you all aware of their small business centers at our area community college? You can work with them to help you with your business plan. And so I'm glad I was able to provide that knowledge to them, but it's not the same case for everyone. You know, for, for a long time, we had an economy that had a mix of small and large businesses, and there's a place uh, for both. They, they perform different kinds of functions. Uh, but we have been, in recent decades, living in one in which there, you know, more and more of the activity is, is concentrated in a few very big firms, and we have fewer and fewer small businesses. And so what we're actually seeing is, is a lack of the kind of dynamism that I think that sort of economic analysis is is. Uh, trying to refer to. Certainly there are businesses that fail because of inherent weaknesses or, or a sh you know, shifts in the market that are, are what they are. Um, but we, um, I think that we often mistake, mistakenly look at the failure of a business with a kind of ideological, you could almost say, framework. Like we've all been, in some respects, trained to believe that small businesses are inefficient and ineffective. And, um, you know, we might be nostalgic for the local pharmacy, but, you know, they really can't compete in this day and age. But what we found in a lot of our research is that small businesses are actually quite competitive in many sectors and that they provide like these very distinct benefits within their industries, just in a straight up, you know, economic basis. And, you know, on top of all of the kind of community benefits that we've been talking about. And that more often than not, it is these sort of structural barriers that work against them and sort of advantage their bigger competitors that are responsible for that. And I do think that you're right that the pandemic has you know, opened a lot of people's eyes and a lot of people have realized how much more important small business is. I mean, a lot of people think it's kind of marginal, but as, as Brandy pointed out in North Carolina, I think you said it was 44% of employment. Um, and, and we have lots of evidence of their role in innovation and you know, all kinds of things that you know, people sort of thought of as, oh, small business, nice to have, but not necessary. And I think we're all kind of realizing, no, 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 very necessary. And there's some things that we need to fix going forward. To you know, backtrack a little bit in the conversation, Stacy. you talked about the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 has had, both from a health um, and economic perspective on uh, communities of color. Um, I mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation that between February and April, the number of business owners declined in the United States by 3.3 million. Uh, that same study uh, said that um, the loss during that period in terms of uh, black business owners was 41%, um, which is I think just a, a staggering number to think about. Um, and we know from numerous indicators about the gaps, the discrepancies between um, black entrepreneurs and white entrepreneurs, for example. And I'll just share one that um, uh, I thought was particularly interesting. And this is prior to COVID. Um, uh, the stat was that 
Uh, white entrepreneurs were more than one and a half times more likely than black entrepreneurs to have business receipts of a million dollars or more. But on the other end of the spectrum, uh, black entrepreneurs um, were um, more than twice as likely than white entrepreneurs to own a business with less than $50,000 in receipts. So let's talk about this, uh, this issue and what you guys are seeing uh, Brandy and Stacy, in your work, particularly when it comes to Black entrepreneurs or other entrepreneurs of color, uh, the challenges um, that they are facing, and what are some of the policy responses that perhaps would be uh, particularly targeted uh, at helping um, create a more level playing field uh, for these entrepreneurs? You know, most recent data that we got, I think from Census Bureau data from 2012 regarding sort of the breakdown on demographics um, on firm ownership is that of, of rural firms, particularly are focused on rural, right, with paid employees, you know, in North Carolina, 16% were female owned, 79% were white owned, 8% were owned by people of color, and then another 14% were listed as non-classified per race ethnicity classification, right? Um, and so the data speaks for itself when regards to sort of who's able and who's in the market in the sense of business ownership. Um, and to that end, you know, what are the then sort of support networks in place to one, I think, let people know this is a viable opportunity to take advantage of. Um, just thinking back when I was in, in school, who knew that starting a business was something that was a viable option? It wasn't anything I had thought about. I had been told my entire life, go to school, go to college, get a good job, get some good insurance, get some retirement benefits and pay your house off. And so not having the conversation about what it means to be able to take a risk, right? Therefore, there was a lack of willingness to do just that. And so I think it really is about how do we start earlier, right, and engaging our young people to inform that this is a viable option. How do we support them in taking that path in the way that's going to lead to success? I think particularly for communities of color and people of color, it really is about seeing someone like yourself doing the work mm -hmm. to know it really is a viable option and opportunity. Um, and so I think without that, it really leads to the likelihood of fewer people engaging and having that same opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that there has been research that shows exposure to entrepreneurship increases uh, the odds that someone uh, will become an entrepreneur themselves. And particularly when you see someone that uh, looks like you, that's from your own community, uh, have success in something like that, um, can be really powerful. Um, in leading uh, a younger person to choose that path of entrepreneurship themselves. Stacey, thoughts on policies that may um, be particularly helpful that are targeted um, at uh, helping entrepreneurs of color um, mm -hmm. gain greater access and have greater levels of success? Yeah, I think the, um, the capital issue is huge, you know, that Brandy talked about earlier in the conversation. Um, we have seen this huge loss in community banks. Um, we've lost a, about nationally about one out of every three community banks over the last mm -hmm. decade. And there are now quite a large number of counties that lack community banks altogether. And our data shows that that's disproportionately counties that have a higher African-American or a higher Latino population. And so our financial infrastructure for meeting the needs of, of entrepreneurs in general is weak. And it's especially weak um, for entrepreneurs of color. But it's also, you know, it's even broader than that because of course a lot of entrepreneurs start their businesses based on 
their personal savings and their, their assets in terms of their home. There is a, a whole set of strategies that I think we need to be thinking about that have to do with the banking sector, that have to do with capital, um, and how you begin to build um, a kind of um, a, a sort of cycle of wealth building um, where we get stronger banks in these communities that are able to do more lending, that build up um, businesses that are able to generate better jobs and higher incomes that enable people to buy homes and, and so on. There's a, a kind of cycle there um, that white neighborhoods have been much more uh, able, you know, have been, have been granted the privilege of being able to take advantage of that's often been denied to communities of color. I think Brandy's notion about, I love this idea of like, why don't we introduce students uh, to the idea of, of business ownership, which, you know, we just don't. And it, it is a much, in many respects, a better job opportunity than I think you see kids coming out of college with a lot of debt and maybe getting a low wage job. Um, and at the same time, communities that need services, grocery stores, pharmacies that they don't have. And, and it seems there's a, just an incredible opportunity to marry those two problems in a really great um, solution. And part of that is capital, but then also how do we think about our economic development incentive programs and our entrepreneurship programs and the ways in which right now they may be structured for a certain set a certain kind of entrepreneur. And if we really assessed them and, and reoriented them, um, we could use them to actually bring in a new generation of entrepreneurs that help to close the racial wealth gap um, and build businesses in communities of color. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another area where there's really a lot of ripe um, opportunity uh, for, for that kind of work. I believe that um, the data is that um, the median wealth for a white uh, family in the United States is nine to ten times greater uh, than that for a black family. I think about that in the context of um, the fourth pillar of America's new business plan, which is support. Uh, and how do we create a more robust safety net that enables entrepreneurial risk-taking? Personal or family wealth is a safety net for folks, right? It, uh, it guards against the risk of failure uh, if you start out, start your own business. Um, it also could be that working capital you need uh, to get started in the first place. Um, but if you're coming from a place where you already have so little wealth, um, you don't have that safety net, you don't have those uh, relationships um, that might um, help fund the start of your business. Um, so I think the wealth piece is, is really critical. Stacey, we've been talking a lot in this conversation about the uneven playing field and about how when government does get involved, um, it often uh, tends to be involved in a way that is more supportive of established, uh, often big businesses than uh, new or small businesses. Um, maybe thinking about this issue from a little bit different angle, are there uh, any kind of like responsibilities for the larger businesses themselves? I think one of our blinders in recent decades has been that we've tended to think about the economy as operating basically distinct from government. We talk about government sort of intervening in the economy from time to time. That's sort of how we think about it. But we sort of imagine that the economy um, operates out there on its own in a sort of ideal way and produces ideal outcomes. And I think that that's actually made it quite hard for us um, because we don't recognize that, in fact, government makes all kinds of decisions that structure what's possible in the economy and that structure markets. 
And that if you want to have a competitive dynamic economy where lots of new entrants can come in and where established companies that maybe are larger have to stay on their toes, you know, and have to actually really compete and work for it, that you need rules. You need a referee just in the same way that you need for a sporting event. Um, and that if you allow big companies to just take advantage of their size in ways that are predatory or that use just straight up market muscle or uh, superior financial resources, you're, you're ending up with outcomes that actually aren't driven by the, the, the market and all of the activity and the choices of market participants, but are really just driven by a, a kind of raw concentration of, of power. You know, Amazon is one of the, the most, I think, uh, significant examples of this. On the one hand, it's brought a lot of innovation and technology uh, and services that many of us enjoy. At the same time, it has become a gatekeeper for online commerce. And that role is a gatekeeper, you know, about almost 60% of the sales done on Amazon are done by smaller sellers that sell on its platform because they can no longer reach an audience on their own, that the Amazon is so dominant in terms of product search that you need to be on the platform to sell there. But that sets up just a fundamental conflict of interest because Amazon is, is competing with the retailers that, that also depend on its site and it sells uh, directly against them. It also charges fees. Um, that keep growing and growing for, for being on the site. That's a kind of problem that we've actually dealt with before in history. We dealt with it with regards to the railroads, you know, back in the day, you know, the railroads were this marvelous new technology that changed everything and opened up a lot of stuff, but they also became um, controlled by folks like John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil. Part of how he built an oil monopoly was that he controlled the railroads in certain regions and he wouldn't let competing oil companies move their oil on the rails. And so this is a little bit similar to what Amazon has done in terms of controlling kind of the infrastructure for the online market. We, we passed a law that said, look, if you own a railroad, you can't also be involved in other things that compete, you know, other businesses that compete with what goes on the rails. And it seems to me it's that kind of refereeing that we're missing. And it's, it's partly because we've failed to recognize um, that government is always shaping the economy. Whatever, whichever choice it makes is shaping it in one direction or another. And the more that we look at that straight, you know, in a straightforward way, the smarter choices we can make about what kinds of outcomes we actually want to see. I, I would not say it nearly as articulately, but I think there's a, a belief that... Um, as you put it, the market just kind of exists out there. It's, it's, it runs on its own and um, that we value the free market, right? That means we don't want to intervene in any way. Intervention is seen as bad, um, but there are all of these ways in which government is setting the rules that structure the market. And when government fails to um, intervene in more direct ways, perhaps, um, it cedes power to the entities in the market that already have the power, um, rather than uh, the people, which is who the government is supposed to represent, right? Being able to set those rules and be the referee. So I'll just jump in and actually add, um, you know, the way that we uh, think about this and um, at the Rural Center is that it's really about a both and, right? So we wanna ensure that there's an approach to incentivizing big business 
and incentivizing small business startups. So, you know, that means we, that we acknowledge there's been a significant underinvestment in small business and entrepreneurs, and we don't want to propose a divestment in any current incentive programs towards big business, but we also want to see something equally and done for small business at the same time. We've talked today um, in this uh, our conversation about advocacy. Brandy, I think you said uh, do was the third piece of uh, uh, the covert uh, plan uh, that you laid out so well for us and that advocacy was core uh, to that. We've also talked about um, this you know, unique opportunity that we have where policymakers are paying attention uh, to the needs of entrepreneurs and small business owners um, and that advocacy really matters now. And while public policy uh, can be messy at times and change can uh, take uh, sometimes years to achieve, we know that, you know, one change that reduces a barrier for entrepreneurship uh, can positively impact hundreds, thousands, millions of entrepreneurs, depending at what level of government that change occurs. Uh, and so our approach is really focused on advocacy, empowering entrepreneurs and people who work with entrepreneurs to engage in policy conversations so that policymakers know what uh, needs entrepreneurs have, that they're hearing directly from entrepreneurs. Because I think in the absence of that, uh, we will continue to get policies that advantage big over small, um, old over new, uh, and we have an opportunity now to, I think, create an economy that is different than the economy we left behind uh, pre-COVID in February, uh, but that takes engagement from folks. So for your organizations, for the Rural Center in North Carolina, for Institute for Local Self-Reliance, what are um, some of the key uh, policies that your organizations are advocating for when it comes to entrepreneurship? What are the things that you want to see changed? We're definitely hearing from our small business owners and parents and students is this issue around broadband, right? Broadband accessibility, affordability, and adoption is really impacting the bottom line of our small business owners. You know, we know that our small businesses rely heavily on access to high quality, dependable broadband, AKA high-speed internet, right? Um, it allows them to market and sell their products and generally just to thrive. And so what the needs are for broadband access for us is a huge issue that we've been advocating for. One that we see impacts a number of communities and a number of sectors and particularly small businesses are one of those definitely that we are watching very heavily. Um, you know, I'll definitely say the other is around um, health insurance, right? So in North Carolina, one of our major policy issues and opportunities, I will say, is to close the health insurance coverage gap. North Carolina right now remains one of 13 states that have not expanded Medicaid. And, you know, with this pandemic, as Stacy, you know, mentioned earlier around not just the health implications, um, that we are seeing that people are obviously losing their jobs, right? No matter how big or how small the business. And so as a result of that, we're steadily seeing more people without health insurance. We're actually not even sure of the exact number. And so with that, we know that's gonna have a huge economic impact across North Carolina. Um, we can only imagine who those individuals are, but the likelihood is a really strong and high percentage of those folks who are impacted, are particular entrepreneurs and small business owners and their employees, right? Mm -hmm. um, so on a federal level, we're aiming for reauthorization of the state small business credit initiative. Um, you know, we see a significant infusion in that program 
being able to provide some immediate access to capital for our small businesses that desperately need it, especially now during this pandemic. And North Carolina has a, you know, a fabulous program, um, one that has significant success. And you know, we just think a small infusion and reauthorization of that will keep that going and another way to support our small businesses across the state. Mm -hmm. Stacey, what about ILSR? We work on both the local and the, the national level because we really see needs in both of those, in, in both of those arenas. Um, at the local level, we do a lot of work where we sort of function as a kind of hub of innovative policy ideas um, and, and the report that we've just published around how communities can address the crisis facing small businesses during, during COVID, you know, is a good example of that because it kind of compiles uh, a bunch of different ideas that we've seen in different parts of the country that seem to be effective and then disseminates them broadly. Um, we think there's a lot of, there are a lot of tools at the local level and a lot of dormant untapped power that, that cities and states have to shift the dynamics so that it's more possible to start businesses. We also do a lot of work at the local level on the broadband issue to pick up on, on Brandy's point. We've helped um, hundreds of communities start publicly owned or community owned broadband networks, including Wilson, uh, North Carolina, which has really seen like this incredible um, you know, economic uh, activity, as I understand it, as a result of having high speed uh, broadband. At the same time, I feel in the research that we that I've done over the years about independent businesses, I'm just very struck at these bigger problems around, for example, the fact that we don't police issues of market power, that our antitrust laws have become so relaxed that we see companies, big companies, sort of routinely able to take advantage of their size to exclude smaller companies from having access to the market. I mean, just to take uh, one example um, is in the, in the craft beer scene. Small-scale brewing is, in some respects, this great success story in entrepreneurship. We've seen this explosion of small-scale craft brewing all across the country. And yet um, what is happening is that you can start a very small brewery, but if you try to grow above a, a certain size, in many states you run into the power of Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors that control the distribution networks. And so if you, if you want to be a microbrewer, it's okay, but if you want to get a little bit bigger and distribute in supermarkets, for example, you can run headlong into their ability to, to block you because they own the distribution. So there's some structural issues like that that we have begun to really spend a, a focusing on Congress uh, and the federal antitrust agencies um, to, to address those problems so that we can really free things up uh, for, for more businesses to be successful. I love that and hearing what both of your organizations are doing uh, on the policy front. We've touched on all three levels of government, federal, state, and local. And I think that's important sometimes that we contend, I think, uh, because of just uh, how much oxygen gets taken up by conversation and the news media, et cetera, around what happens in DC to think that that's the, that's the place you, you got to go, right, if you want to see change. Uh, but we know that things that happen at the local level, at the state level, uh, that also matters a great deal uh, to entrepreneurship. And if we want to create uh, a level, more level playing field, a better ecosystem uh, for entrepreneurship, we need all three levels of government uh, to really step up their level of support, um, to listen to the needs of entrepreneurs the, and those who work with them, uh, to begin um, reducing the barriers that stand in entrepreneurs' way. Before we, we wrap up, I want to uh, try and just to do a little kind of dreaming about the future. Um, and what each of you want to see in the new economy and why you are hopeful 
um, that what you envision and hope to see may actually come to fruition? You know, I'll definitely start by saying that we have to start from the advantage of fis having fiscally sound policy solutions. And I see the drivers of that effort really being our entrepreneurs. Um, the change really needs to be led by those who are most impacted and the voices of our entrepreneurs and small business owners need to be at the forefront. And quite honestly, in creating an equitable and just and dynamic economy requires that effort to be led by women, by veterans, and by people of color who have been disenfranchised um, from opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And so if they're at the forefront and leading and guiding the development of the policies, by gosh, I hope we're, we're moving more towards equitable, just policy for the, in that regard. I think in addition to that, I'm a fan of Hoffman Foundation's Americans in Business Plan and its four pillars. I think it's a great framework for where to start the conversation. It's a great guidebook and we here in North Carolina are gonna use it to our advantage to be able to educate our policymakers and to create a North Carolina specific plan, right? So we have to think of what's really gonna be most applicable here in our very own state. So for me, it's you know letting the train change be driven by the folks who are most impacted by it and policymakers being open to that change and willing to deliver upon it. I, I feel more optimistic now than I have in a long time. And, and I think, you know, despite sort of where the where some of the trend lines are for small business, we are having this conversation about policy in a way that feels, I think, very different to me than, than even just a few years ago, where there's a recognition that small businesses are not a marginal kind of thing, and that there are uh, uh, ways in which we have set up our policy that, that are real barriers. And so I think there's a much more substantive conversation. I was thinking at the beginning of the call, and I was reminded of it when you uh, asked for sort of for hopeful stories. Um, I live in Maine, I live in Portland, which is sort of the big city, but we're also very much a rural state. And one of the pieces that we did last year, a kind of reported piece uh, about uh, an entrepreneur in Washington County, which is our poorest county uh, and has really some devastating statistics around income, um, uh, heroin addiction, you know, other things uh, along those lines, and a lot of towns that you go through and that are just really empty. One of the problems that that region has really struggled with is, is they've been a, a, had an absence of pharmacies. They're part of a, a growing problem of pharmacy deserts that exists in both rural and urban areas. And this uh, pharmacist who uh, had been working for a chain who was an immigrant from Nigeria uh, opened a pharmacy because he had so many customers coming from this underserved region and driving two and three hours to get to his pharmacy that he saw this need and he opened this pharmacy and he's done fairly well. He's now opened a second location in another community in the region. He's had just extraordinary support from the community. Um, but in doing that story, we also talked with him a lot about some of the ways in which the pharmacy benefit management companies and including CVS Health kind of make it hard for independent pharmacies uh, to succeed, even though we know that they're, they do a better job in terms of healthcare, they do a better job even in terms of having lower prescription drug prices. And to me, that was a story that was both hopeful and it also pointed to the work that we need to do in the sense that if we can change some of these barriers that exist, um, can you imagine a, you know, a bunch of pharmacists who are then able to um, leave the job at the chain in the big city and actually go into a community that they would love to live in and be a pillar of, and start a business that's really needed. Um, and you know, to me, it's stories like that that I feel like really drive our work. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, for any entrepreneurs that 
uh, tune into this conversation. Um, I hope that and expect that they will um, leave a little bit more hopeful, um, just knowing that there are organizations like Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the uh, North Carolina Rural Center, who are thinking deeply about these issues and engaging. Um, I love the vision that both of you shared for what we can move into. And just want to echo that. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that we can uh, move into a, an economy where any American, regardless of their background or where they live, uh, if they want to become an entrepreneur, they have an equal shot, uh, an equal opportunity to do so, to be successful, however they define success for themselves and for their community. I know sometimes we can get frustrated, and there's, I think, today, uh, especially a lot to perhaps be frustrated about when it comes to government. Um, but I'm hopeful because, you know, we still live in a country where uh, we each have a voice, um, and that means we can choose a different path. Um, if we want to see in a, a future that's different um, than what we have experienced so far, um, we can engage, we can become advocates, uh, we can share our stories um, and lift up those around us in our communities uh, to try and bring about that better future. So thank you both, Brandy. Thank you, Stacy, um, for being part of this conversation today. Thank you for the work that you and your organizations do uh, to help entrepreneurs uh, and we look forward uh, work to working with you and many others uh, to bring about um, that better economy that we've talked about today. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Kauffman Foundation podcast. For more stories on growing an inclusive economy, please visit us at emkf.org forward slash podcast. The Uncommon Voices series brings new perspectives and opinions on topics related to the Kauffman Foundation's work. The perspectives of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kauffman Foundation, but are presented here to celebrate uncommon voices and civil discourse to move conversations forward.